From Vermont Digger, I'm Mike Dougherty. This is The Deeper Dig. Hello, this is Eric Davis. Hey, Eric, it's Mike from VT Digger. How are you? Good afternoon, Mike. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks. Uh, Vermont's general election is less than two weeks away, and one local expert has been tracking more or less every race in the state. My name is Eric Davis. I'm Professor Emeritus of Political Science at Middlebury College. I've been following Vermont elections for close to 40 years. Wow. 40 years is a long time. Yes. When Dick Snelling was governor, that was when I first started following elections. Wow. Have Vermont elections changed a lot since then? In some senses, yes. I mean, more money is being spent, and I think outside groups play more of a role. But in another sense, I don't think they've changed all that much. I mean, they still depend a lot on personal contact, even for the statewide candidates, governor and U.S. senator and so forth. Personal contact. You mean they got to go to different towns and shake hands? Yeah, exactly. A lot of a lot of meet and greets and meetings with small groups and so forth rather than than large set piece presentations. Another thing that's changed is the party playing defense when it comes to legislative races. This year, the Republican Party is working to retain as many of their current House seats as possible because losing them could mean losing the ability to uphold a veto by the governor. When the legislature adjourned last June at the end of the special session, the composition of the House, which has 150 members, was 83 Democrats, 53 Republicans, seven progressives, and seven independents. And the progressives and the Democrats tend to vote together on most major issues. So that mm-hmm. really gives that, that group 90 votes. Okay. Governor Scott used the veto very effectively as part of his legislative strategy over the last two years. In November of 2016, Vermonters voted for a divided government, a governor and a legislative majority of separate parties, bringing a new way of thinking and a different approach to Montpelier. He vetoed more bills than any governor has in a two-year biennium previously. Three were on measures relating to the state budget or education finance, one in 2017, two in 2018. A fundamental disagreement remains, as I simply can't support to add to the tax burden of Vermonters Now's the time is to come to the table and work on a solution before we get to a veto. This reality uh, makes any effort by legislative leaders to pass bills in a budget they know will not receive my support and that I will veto an unnecessary waste of resources. And then there were vetoes of the bills to provide for a $15 minimum wage over a number of years and a paid family leave bill. The governor has vetoed those tens of thousands of people's pay raises. And none of those bills was overridden. In the Senate, where the Democrats had a majority of 23 to 7 in the last session, there's far more than the 20 votes that would be needed to override a veto. But in the House, the 53 Republicans held together. When a veto override vote was taken on the floor, the House Republicans voted as a block and all 53 of them voted to sustain the veto, which is enough. And that happened every time. Every time. The none of Governor Scott's vetoes was overridden. I think one of the big questions regarding this year's election is, can the Democrats and the progressives together gain enough votes to be able to override a Scott veto? If Governor Phil Scott is reelected, the Democrats and progressives would need 100 votes to override his vetoes. So that means picking up some seats in this election and sometimes convincing some independents to vote with them. The independents are a mixed bag. 
One of them, Paul Poirier from Barry, actually is a person who, on a number of issues, is, is pretty much the left. Some of the independents are center-right in other years, might have been elected as Republicans, and some of them are, are, are real centrists. But it's my view that if Democrats and progressives together were to gain about half a dozen seats to get them from their current 90 up to 96, by picking off independent votes on an issue-by-issue basis, they might be able to come very close to having the 100 votes they would need to override a gubernatorial veto. In terms of districts that are currently Republican that the Democrats and progressives would be looking to pick up, about how many of those do you think are in play? I've identified 10 districts that are now either held by a Republican incumbent or open seats that used to be Republican that I think the Democrats have a, have a reasonable chance of winning. It's unlikely they'll win all 10 of them, but as I said before, if they were to pick up maybe half of them, five or six, that would put them a good way toward the goal of having a veto-proof majority. Eric says one factor in a competitive race is party identification. Republicans who represent areas of the state that have otherwise tended to vote for Democrats in uh, statewide races in particular. And a good example of that is the district in Stowe, uh, the first Lamoille district, currently represented by Heidi Sherman, a Republican who's held the seat for quite some time. But in recent statewide elections, Stowe has been trending more Democratic. I mean, it's interesting to note in the last governor's election, for example, that Sue Minter, the Democratic candidate, won Stowe, even though she lost uh, her hometown, the neighboring town of Waterbury. Hmm. So uh, Maria Meerberg, the Democratic candidate in Stowe, is, I think, really emphasizing her party identification and that she'd be part of a larger Democratic effort in Montpelier, whereas Heidi Sherman is doing all she can to try and make the election focused on local issues and to keep party out of it as, uh, to the greatest extent possible. The person who wins this election, either Heidi or Marina, will be representing only Stowe. And Stowe tends to go both ways. They have a really vocal group of Democrats, but there is a large component of equally vocal Republicans. Kaylee Cross is covering this race for the Stowe Reporter. This is the first time that Heidi's been opposed since 2006. She kind of makes it a point in her campaign to reach across the aisle and to hear from both parties. I wonder why do you think this year was different in terms of a Democrat jumping into the race? Well, it's interesting because we have a lot of young families in Stowe, and in particular in the wake of the Kavanaugh hearings and confirmation, that group of Democrats has become quite vocal, including some demonstrations in front of our town hall. And, you know, actually I've seen a lot of signs up and down Mountain Road, too, talking about tolerance and acceptance and getting out the vote no matter who you vote for. So... I actually think that national politics has really had a huge impact on people getting out there and and becoming more involved and realizing that now is the time. Just in general, what are the other issues that they're putting out the most and, and that seem to be resonating with voters out there? So the minimum wage issue has been divisive for those candidates. Heidi says that the minimum wage should not be raised. She thinks that there's a place for entry-level jobs and that there is a difference between minimum wage and a livable wage. Marina Mirberg is very much for raising that minimum wage. Another divisive issue is environmental issues. Both candidates agree that it's important to clean up Lake Champlain, but their split kind of falls along 
the lines of who should bear the biggest brunt in terms of coming up with the money to pay for that. Heidi doesn't believe that it's fair to put the brunt of that on lodging owners, whereas Marina thinks that if you pass that cost along to tourists who come here to enjoy our scenery and, and our recreation industry, that they'll be happy to pick up some of the cost of helping keep that clean. That's a an element of it that's really specific to the Stowe district because it's so tourism-focused. That's right. And Heidi um, Heidi has made increasing, boosting, and buoying the tourism industry a huge cornerstone of her campaign. She says that a study a couple of years ago showed that for every dollar Vermont spends on tourism, the state earns $7 back. And she has, in the last 12 years, shown that she is tireless in promoting Stowe tourism. And in this campaign, she has said that she will continue to do that. Marina agrees that tourism is important, and she says that our destination marketing organization is doing a really good job at bringing in folks to town, and she kind of falls along Heidi's lines there. They both agree. But there are a couple of local issues, too, that that kind of just impact Stowe that are really interesting. We're still talking 40 years later about whether or not to relocate our utility lines, and a vote is coming up on Election Day about whether or not to go for a bond that would enable us to finally make that happen. Heidi's very much for it, and Marina herself, she had not made up her mind. And what do you have your eye on on the ground for the next week and a half in terms of preparing for Election Day? We are watching what the candidates are doing. We are getting in a lot of letters to the editor from people who support both sides. I've seen a lot of support for Heidi going into the election, maybe a a few more letters for her than Marina, but we've seen a lot of groundswell support for Marina, too. Honestly, at this point, it could go either way. It's really tough to say. Eric says another factor that makes a seat competitive is an incumbent stepping down. It becomes a lot more difficult to defend a seat when there's no incumbent on the ballot because you don't have someone who has the advantage of being well-known personally to a lot of voters in the district. That's what's happening in one key race in Addison County. Well, Addison 4 is perhaps the most interested and hotly contested House district here in, in our county. John Flowers is covering this race for the Addison Independent. One of the two incumbents, uh, longtime representative Dave Sharp, a Democrat from Bristol, and uh, who was most recently chair of the House Education Committee, he chose not to seek re-election. And so anytime there's a, a seat up for grabs, it draws more interest. The Democrats uh, think they have two very strong candidates in uh, Marie Cordes and, and Caleb Elder, and that they could, they could win both seats there. Uh, Caleb works in the renewable energy industry. Mari Cordes is a longtime registered nurse. And those two Democrats will be vying with the incumbent Fred Baser, a very popular Republican candidate from Bristol who uh, is now a member of the Ways, the House Ways and Means Committee, and Valerie Mullen, a Moncton Republican who, this is her third run for the seat. She's uh, a business person. So we have you know, four people running for two seats. The district had for a very long time been represented by Dave Sharp and Mike Fisher, former chair of the House Health Care Committee. Fred Baser actually defeated Mike Fisher four years ago. So things can happen in this district and we'll keep an eye on it. John says that like Stowe, this district is fairly split. The lay of the land demographically in the district is Bristol still tends to vote more Republican than Democrat, but the other three communities in the district have all tended to vote for Democrats in majority, those being the towns of Starksboro, Moncton, and Lincoln. This split dates back to 2002, when the district lines were redrawn. 
It was at that point that Bristol ceased being a single legislative one-seat district. It was at that point that Bristol was put in with the other three towns to become a two-seat district. Historically, Bristol had voted for Republicans consistently, and and Bristol in and of itself has, has tended to vote Republican. However, when that community was lumped in with the other three, which are more liberal, the overall district, two-seat district, uh, opted more for Democrats than Republicans. Dave Sharp and Mike Fisher were the incumbents in that district for a dozen or more years. Um, it was just Fred kind of emerging four years ago that wiped out that trend, at least temporarily. And uh, But you know, for the past two decades, it's been primarily a Democrat. Got it. So if the Democrats were to retake both the seats in that district, it would be kind of a a reclaiming of something that they used to have a hold on. Yes. And if, you know, if Fred is reelected and the other seat goes to uh, to a Democrat, they'd essentially be, be maintaining the status quo there as far as party representation. Again, Fred Baser is trying to run for reelection very much as an independent uh, to de-emphasize his Republicanism and to say that, uh, you know, he's, he's going to be an independent voice for the district is the way he puts it. Is that an increasing pattern? Do you see that happening more and more? Yeah. And in fact, in some parts of the state, I think, and I think, you know, the the state Republican Party may not be willing to admit this to a reporter, (laughs) but I think there are some parts of the state where a person with Republican leanings might be better advised to run for the legislature as an independent rather than as a Republican. Uh, The word Republican to many Vermonters is associated with Trump. And Trump is not very popular in the state right now. His approval rating by a recent poll in the state is only 24%. So non-democratic candidates in some parts of the state would be better off running as independents than as Republicans. Eric says another battleground district is Windsor-Orange. Yeah, the Windsor-Orange district, which is, which is Tunbridge and neighboring towns in the White River Valley, that has been one of the closest House districts in the state for the last several cycles. It's gone to recounts, almost never a margin of more than 100 votes between the candidates. The incumbent is Republican David Ainsworth. He is a dairy farmer in Royalton and is a fifth generation dairy farmer. And the Democrat is John O'Brien. He is a Tunbridge selectman uh, who was born and raised in Tunbridge and has been a filmmaker but is also living on his family's old sheep farm. John Gregg covers this area as the news editor of the Valley News. It's in the heart of the White River Valley, and it is an old, uh, these are two old farm communities. At the same time, uh, South Royalton is home to Vermont Law School, and it also includes sort of bedroom communities to the big employment centers in the Upper Valley. Some people also commute to Montpelier. So there's a good mix of both sort of a traditional uh, Vermont agrarian economy and also people who are plugged into the bigger towns in the state. With this race, one thing I'm curious about is we always hear that ousting an incumbent is really difficult. What is it this year that makes Ainsworth maybe vulnerable? It's always been a very close race in this district going back almost a decade. Uh, He held the seat for two terms and then lost it in 2010 by just a handful of votes to Sarah Buxton, a Democrat. And then he won it back 
in 2016, initially by one vote, and then there was a recount, and they added a second vote. And so David Ainsworth won the seat back by two votes. So it's always been a very close swing district. People know him well. As I said, he's a fifth-generation dairy farmer plugged into the community. But also uh, John O'Brien's arguments about David Ainsworth is perhaps he is more conservative than the district has become. And when you talk about this district having such razor-thin margins in a lot of these elections, why do you think that is? Is there a reason kind of intrinsic to that area? I think it's a combination. Orange County traditionally has been a little bit more conservative, certainly more conservative than Windsor County. So maybe there was that way uh, about Tunbridge. Um, But then you also have... Uh, perhaps a bit of a more progressive strain from the number of Vermont law school students who might live in the two towns. So I think that that's sort of an interesting mix. But I also think people, you know, as in many cases in Vermont, uh, might vote a little bit more on the person than on the party. Eric, how much do you think this idea of control of the House is on voters' minds? I mean, I know nationally we hear this conversation about a possible blue wave. People are very uh, attuned to the control of the uh, House in the U.S. Congress. But when Vermonters go to the polls, how much do you think that that's actually on their minds here? I think it's less so than at the national level because, I mean, Trump is is a much more polarizing figure than Phil Scott or anyone in Vermont politics is. But I think also... Vermont House elections have often been based on personal identification with the candidates, that someone who was well-known in the district for other reasons before they became a legislator, that they were on the school board or they were active in a voluntary organization in the town or or owned a local business in some other ways were well-known in the district. Local journalists said the same thing. House candidates don't seem to be campaigning on a state-level blue wave. Yeah, I mean, I think that's more of a big-picture type of thing. I'm sure the the political strategists are thinking about that a lot. I know that the the Republicans in particular are trying to prevent further erosion of their numbers in both the House and the Senate. I don't know what promises they made to the people. You know, the incumbents, they've been trying to keep on board, but they don't want uh, Governor Scott to lose his veto guarantee. It really hasn't. Um, not not in terms of the debates I've covered or from what I've seen in letters to the editor. It's um, In Heidi's 12 years in the House, she has worked to find compromise on a lot of bills that have split people along party lines. Like, for instance, a pregnancy bill that she didn't approve of the House version, but then she helped work on the Senate version, and she did end up voting for that one. So Heidi has, has um, made some ground in bridging those gaps. So I think that even for her, if she was reelected, even if the Democrats were able to override a veto, Heidi would find a way to make that work. And Marina, too, has said that that's a cornerstone of her campaign, is bipartisanship. You know, I don't know that that would be a factor as they make this vote. Again, I think there's probably going to be on on what they know about each of the candidates, and I think both of them are pretty well known. Uh, I do know that um, someone who lives in Tunbridge showed me a mailer uh, that was sent out in behalf of John O'Brien from uh, an environmental conservation league, and it struck me that that was probably uh, a signal that this was indeed one of the districts that groups allied with Democrats were really focusing on to try and flip to help get that veto-proof majority in the House. Do you care to make any wild predictions? 
I think what I would say at this point is that the Democrats are likely to pick up seats in the House and the progressives, too. I think that number that's now 90 will be higher once all the votes are counted after Election Day. Whether it will be high enough to give the Democrats and progressives a veto-proof majority, I think, is still open to question. Thank you so much, Eric. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. My pleasure. You can learn more about these house races at vtdigger.org. And check out our full election coverage at vtdigger.org elections. This is our complete 2018 voter guide. It includes voter registration and voting information, candidate profiles, and full news coverage of the 2018 campaigns. The site, again, is vtdigger.org elections. Thanks again to Eric Davis, Kaylee Cross, John Flowers, and John Gregg for joining us. If you live in any of these areas, check out more coverage from The Stowe Reporter, The Addison Independent, and The Valley News. The Deeper Dig is VT Digger's weekly podcast. Search for it and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, and you'll get new episodes as soon as they land. We'll be back next week with more stories from the Digger Newsroom. Have a nice weekend.